so grateful to have our Bibles, Lord, to know what you say, not what we think salvation is about or, or what we think maybe you say. We can read it for ourselves and believe the Bible. What a joy this is, Lord. So, Lord, open our hearts and minds to your truth this morning. Lord, we're so grateful to gather. We thank you for each and every one that are here, Lord. Bless them. Uh, cause us to find great joy in assembling together, just like you commanded us to, Lord. Father, we do remember those who just can't quite get back here yet. Uh, we pray that you would provide a way for them to return here, Lord. We do pray for those who are homebound probably till you take them home, Lord. Give them mercy and may we remember them and may they enjoy the streaming and be able to hear God's word themselves. Lord, now hear your word being taught, Lord. This, we do this for your glory, Lord, and certainly for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. When we get into the doctrine of salvation, particularly like we're teaching it here over these last weeks and weeks to come, is we look at the doctrine of salvation from the role of God when we talk about the doctrines of grace. Now, certainly we speak of salvation a lot. We talk about redemption and, and how it's affected us and, and how Christ died for our sins. And we, we spend so much time in almost every passage as we work our way through books in the Bible on that. But when we slow down and we take a look at the doctrines of grace, and let me say this again, we are looking often at God's role in salvation. And that's where so many churches fail to do. They fail to look at the role of God. What did he do? How is it about him? And that's where worship comes. That's when we begin to really exalt the Lord. When we think about things like a limited atonement or particular redemption, we begin to wrestle with the fact that God does know whose are his. And so he must, though it's hard for us to understand this, he must know those that are not his. Now, when we study this, we begin to speak about God's sovereignty, don't we? And though that is a line that we should not cross, God, God is perfect in all that he does. We're going to be reminded of that this morning. That is a line that belongs to God. We do stand there in, in, and often stand in awe of his perfect sovereign wisdom that knows all things, does all things perfectly. And that's when we really begin to worship. We really begin to see that God in his sovereignty has a, a conscious, decisive, loving decision that is perfect. And we dare not challenge him on that. It isn't hard to look a little farther into what he does and realize this is a great rescue effort as well. And yes, there are those we'll see today. We, as Pastor Jason read that text, it is so clear that there are those that he leaves in their sin... He is glorified even by their judgment of them. But for us, we don't understand that. What we understand is that he rescued us. <laughs> and we're amazed. And this rescue plan was fashioned from the foundations of the world, the Bible tells us. We think about the depth and the preciseness of salvation. Uh, we're amazed. Dr. Steve Lawson said just this week, I read this, he said, God is never caught off guard. Oh, whoa, Scott believed in me. Huh, didn't see that one coming. God's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He's never learning anything. Do you believe that? 
See, we have to apply this to our salvation because there's this whole teaching out there that somehow you have to muster up the strength to somehow choose God. But wait a minute. God is never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He's never learning anything. He knows everything eternally, immediately, and exhaustively, Dr. Lawson said. He knows all things. Our dear friend who's with the Lord now, Dr. Sproul, he said this, if God did not act first, nobody would be saved. I mean, it's just that simple, isn't it, the Bible? If God does not move, if God does not make a decisive, perfect decision before the foundations of the world, we're all damned. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. He loved us before the foundations of the world and drew us to himself. Now, where so much of this breaks down is two areas. One, often Christians, saved Christians, have a poor understanding of God. They just have a poor understanding of God. And what happens, a lot of times we're led to Christ and, and we're amazed that we're saved and so forth, but, but we're just kind of caught up in ourselves. Oh, we need this. i got to have a verse to get me through today. And, and it's, it's very much a take type of relationship with God. And so there becomes, and if that doesn't get corrected, if that new believer is not discipled, what happens is they end up with a poor view of God. And they don't understand his greatness and who he is and what he did before the foundations of the world. And so often they struggle in worship, they struggle in life because they did not know him like he is described in the scripture. The other thing is there's a poor, uh, poor understanding of depravity. We think, ah, oh, well, yeah, we were pretty bad, but were we that bad? And so we, we don't understand. That's why we spent two weeks to start this whole series off. And please go back and listen to those sermons. Because this one might, you might struggle with this one a bit. If you don't understand depravity. And when we look at depravity and go, there is nothing good in us. <laughs> There's nothing that, that we could offer God in any way. We're dead to him. See, we have to understand God. And you have to understand depravity. And then salvation just comes exploding forth. And you go, oh, what an amazing salvation we have. So, five thoughts this morning around the doctrine of grace, particularly around particular redemption or limited atonement. These are fascinating thoughts when we begin to wrestle with God. But first and foremost, as we look at these five thoughts, I want to look at number one, because we've got to go have a quick study of God, make sure we understand Him, because this isn't going to work if you don't understand God, right? You're going to doubt Him and not believe what the rest of the Bible says on this. So we're going to look first. And so number one, the omniscient, holy, loving God precisely chose for Himself those He would perfect. Now, I know that's a long, some of these, when you're dealing with this kind of doctrine, man, you should see the books I have stacked up. I can't wait to get back to, you know, going through the next book in the Bible because this takes a tremendous amount of work to do this. So, so sometimes my titles are a little long, but let's read that one more time. The omniscient, holy, loving God precisely chose for himself those he would perfect. Now, you go, where do you get that, Scott? Well, it's all through the Bible, but here's some verses. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. I'm going to give you a tremendous amount of verses today. Write them down. Go look at them later, um, but we'll move along for the sake of time. For by one offering, Hebrews 10, 14, he has perfected for all time. Now, now we see these words all the time in the text. Those, not all people, those in Hebrews chapter 10, 14, who are sanctified, who God chose to set apart. That's what the word means. 
You can't get around the language. It's all there. So God sent his son with one offering. Jesus did what all the offerings, all the lambs and grain offerings and wave offerings and all the offerings of the Old Testament, he did one offering, what they could not do, and he perfected it. He perfected, that's you and I, the believer, those chosen by God, set apart for him, he perfected us. What a statement. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn. He's talking about today, this is Hebrew Christians that are being addressed in the book of Hebrews. And he says this, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn. Now listen to this phrase, who are enrolled in heaven. Now, that's astounding, isn't it? There's a role in heaven, and I'm on it. <laughs> and you're on it if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. There's a role in heaven. You know why he has that role? Because he did it before the foundations of the world. And I think that's fascinating. He addresses this general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, and then it says this, made perfect. This is astounding. This is the wisdom of God to do this. Now, let's think about God's knowledge and wisdom here for just a moment. God's knowledge never had a beginning, and it's exactly like his nature. It's eternal. So he has not had to grow in his knowledge at all. So God's knowledge is internal, meaning his knowledge came from himself. He did not have to learn it outside of him. This is the doctrine of theology proper, right? The doctrine of God. So God's knowledge precedes all things outside of himself because his knowledge has never been derived from anything outside himself. That's a pretty cool statement, isn't it? You and I are always learning. We're always learning. I hope you learn today. It's because we need to learn. God does not have to learn anything. He doesn't learn about new people coming to him. He knows them from the foundations of the world. He is a God that is completely self-sufficient in his knowledge. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, 6 to 8 says this. Now listen to this. Yet we do, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. He's talking to the mature here because there was a tremendous amount of immaturity in the church of Corinth. He says, a wisdom, however, not of this age, not from of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So he's, he's talking about a wisdom that is not by man, not, not even... Um, wrestled with man. 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 This is apart from man. There's a greater wisdom than what man can come, come up with. And then verse 7, he says, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Now here, of course, it's the mystery is the gospel being unveiled to all people, Jews, Gentiles alike. A hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of our glory. Before the ages of man, God predetermined this wisdom, this mystery to be preached. And we hear this kind of language all through the Bible. So God's knowledge is, is perfect and complete, and it never increases. It never increases, because it doesn't what? Have to. <laughs> his, his, his knowledge is not growing. He has all knowledge, infinite wisdom, and he's always had it. Now listen to Isaiah chapter 40 to prove this, verse 13 through 14. i got to just read a lot of verses because of time here. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who has, has been his counselor and informed him? With whom did he, and we're speaking of God here, consult who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Well, it's rhetorical, isn't it? 
No one. <laughs> Isaiah here, the prophet Isaiah, through the Spirit of God, is pushing the nation of Israel, who they are rejecting the God of all of eternity, and he's saying, who do you think he gets his wisdom from? He gets it from nobody. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 11, 33 through 34, using that text, he said, Oh, the depth and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. So now we are talking about the richness and the depth of God's wisdom beyond even what I think our scope of our mind could ever, ever understand. Now, God's knowledge is infinite and clearly defined. It's precise, it's certain, it's sure, it's comprehensive, and it's unmistakable. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know it through the Word of God. The Word of God tells us the, who God is through His Word. So, you know these verses, Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 13. The Word of God, think of your Bibles, but also the wisdom of God, right? is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. What other word can do that? And listen to this. Of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If you ever tried to do that with your spouse, you're in trouble. Anytime we try to judge the intentions of somebody, we have no right to do that. Because we're going to be wrong most of the time. But not God. See, his wisdom is so vast, he knows even the intentions of your heart. That's before you ever make a decision. He knows, he knows what's going on inside you. And then verse 13 says, there is no creature. You think you can hide from God? There is no creature hidden from his sight, for all things are laid bare, laid open before his eyes with whom we have to do with. What a statement. This is that infinite wisdom of God. So God in his perfect wisdom chooses before the foundations of the world who will be his forever family. You just can't get around that truth. It's all through the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, you're going to hear me say this several times in the sermon. This is the statement of God. Nevertheless, the firm foundations of God stands. Listen to this. The Lord knows whose are his. The Lord knows whose are his. And we rejoice in that. Well, what about the holiness of God? We've got to think about that when it comes to this great doctrine of salvation, don't we? And God's holiness is... It's his essence, it's his nature, it's his character. It's his mark of absolute greatness. He's absolutely 100% holy. And this means that God is absolutely distinct from and above everything outside of him. And this makes him completely and morally separated from sin. There's two main words that we have for this. Uh, Quados is the Hebrew word. And then uh, hagias is the Greek word. Both mean that he is devoid of sin. He is absent of evil. So now we have this perfect holy God. So God, holiness, God's holiness is majestic. It's splendid. And which, which speaks of this inherited greatness, this inherited ability to resist all compromise. God can resist all compromise. I think that's fascinating. 
All challenges he resists in his character, making him transcendent, meaning there's nothing like him. He's unequal to anything. And distinct from all of his creation, thus defining his majesty. Now, God's holiness qualifies all of his other attributes, right? In every way, when you, no matter what you look at his attributes, his grace, his mercy, his omnipresence and om, omniscience and omnipotence, and you can go down the line, both communicative and non-communicative attributes, they all are qualified by his holiness. They all are absent of sin, thus God is absent of sin. The Bible talks about God's holiness. If you want to just do a study that will really encourage you, pursue the holiness of God. Psalms 97, 12, be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalms 99, 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, holy is he. Psalms 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his what? Holy name. This is who he is. Name is character, is essence, right? Holy is his essence. Isaiah 63, I mean 6 verse 3, there we have that scene where Isaiah is brought into that vision of the angels around the throne. And what are they doing? These angels, these incredible beings that are described in that text are flying around the throne of God and they're going, holy, holy, holy is God. Set apart from all of his creation is God. And then when you get to the final scene of as it works towards end times. And there John is brought into the scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And here are these creatures again around the throne crying out the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He is holy. And it, look, and if God is transcendent, he's unequal, right? He's holy, distinct from everything outside of him. He must certainly be separated from sin, hating sin, demanding purity for those who reside with him for eternity. He has to get us to be pure and holy to be in his presence. There's no other way. There will never be anyone in heaven who is not set apart completely, 100% from sin. That's why heaven's so beautiful. Only the holy are there. Well, we realize that that's not something we can do on our own. <laughs> that's the work of salvation. That's the work of God. And he chooses us and declares us righteous through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls us blameless and holy before him. And not for that moment, not at that moment of salvation, but from that moment on for all of eternity, we stand holy before God. And not before just any God, holy before a Holy God. Boy, that gets me excited. Are you guys awake? I mean, this is cool stuff, isn't it? To, to know that God makes you holy. I know me. <laughs> Do you know you? <laughs> oh, my goodness, is this not a miracle? This is a miracle, isn't it? Oh, Peter said, oh, obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust of of which were yours in ignorance. Don't, don't go back to the world, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in, in all of your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy because I'm holy. So he says, in our Christian life, we should pursue holiness because God has given us a standing of holiness. So pursue it. What's in our life that needs to go? You know, you know what's in your life that needs to go. 
God's given us a holy standing. Let's work to walk with him in this life. God's also one other aspect just before I finish this point. God's great and perfect love. We have to understand that. If you're, not, you're never going to understand the doctrines of grace and limited atonement and all that if you don't understand his love. And only God can, listen to this, only God can love himself perfectly. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, in his infinite wisdom, he chooses and calls individuals, now listen to this, whom he perfectly loves, to, um, whom he perfectly loves, and he calls us to love him. Now, within the Trinity is this perfect love relationship. There's perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is no jealousy. There is no bitterness. There's, it is absolutely perfect love. So God, in his infinite wisdom, has to choose us out of this world, save us, give us this incredible love as we enter into this, now think about this, this Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. This stuff, I know we're swimming in the deep end of the pool here, but, but hang on. Because when we start to think about this, how could we ever love God if he did not do something miraculous? And then to bring us into this relationship that he loves himself in such perfection and allows us to love him in perfection for all of eternity is astounding, isn't it? How could he do such a thing? In his perfect love, he gave his son to make us able to love him. So here's what I would say. He made the unlovable lovable. Isn't that mean? Uh, we could not love God on your own. I don't care who you are, and you can debate this with all kinds of people, but you can show them depravity does not let you love God. But in our salvation, through the infinite wisdom of God, we're able to love him. Look at 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 4. You've got to see this. 1 John chapter 4. Remember, we looked at so many passages in the book of John when it came to unconditional election on what Jesus said. Jesus was the greatest teacher of unconditional election. There's no greater teacher. He is so clear on the election of God and that God gave him each and every individual that he died for. But here we begin to start to understand even the depth of his love. Look at chapter 4. We'll start in verse 16. We have come to know and have believed. Now, I love that phrase. We have come to know why, because you didn't know before. Isn't that what that, you could, is that a pretty good interpretation of that? We've come to know, we didn't know before, and we have believed, we didn't believe before. So God's work, God's working on us, right? And have believed the love which God has for, notice this, for us. It's a unique group of people, isn't it? So before we didn't understand this, we didn't believe it before, but now we've come to know, we've come to believe, that's the work of God, how much he loves us. God is love. Now, you've seen the new statements out there. Love is love. That's their new statement out there. Well, wait a minute. That's not true. God is love. God is the definition of love. You cannot take the word love. You can, and of course they do. But it's such a warped, humanistic view of love, right? Love is whatever I want to make it out. No, God's love. The Bible says it right here. God is love. So he's a standard of love. So whatever, however Christians define love, we define it right here from who God is. Now look what he says. And the one who abides in, in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So that's, that's a new creation. Because we know, listen, 
It's not hard. We know in our depravity we could not love God. So God had to do something miraculously. This is what we call the new creation. We're, crea- we're new creatures in Christ, right? So now we have the capability of love because why? Because he abides in us. See that in the text? Look at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us. Isn't this cool? Well, what's by this? Well, that's his abiding. His abiding perfects love in us. You know, you're going to be a perfect lover your entire eternity because God abides in you. Now, we're working on it here, but we do know how to love God, don't we? Because he abides in us. If he doesn't abide in us, we don't love God. You see this? This is why it's so sovereign, isn't it? So then it says, his love is per, uh, and love is perfected in us so that, here comes the result, we have confidence on the day of judgment. Uh-oh. If you don't love God, <laughs> and you're going to stand before him someday, or you don't love God the way he instructed what true love is, oh, I have my own love for God, I, I have my own way. Oh, uh, you're in a lot of trouble, and you have no confidence when you step before him. See, we love God We love him and we say, oh God, I have no standing with you outside of your finished work through your son. See, that's loving God. And so here, now we have confidence, right? So we have confidence to say, oh, our faith is in you, God. Our love is in you and what you did. Because as he is, so also we, so are we in this world. Even now we can love God, the Bible's telling us. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love. Boy, a lot of of anger out there about what so-called love is love. They get really mad. And there's a lot of fear in it, but not with God. There's no fear in real love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. Wait a minute. Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, you begin to grasp the depth of God's love, don't you? Right? And the one who fears, look at this, is not perfected in love. They are not saved. So you find someone who's full of fear and has confusing views of God, confusing views of their own goodness or their own righteousness. They're not, they have not experienced perfect love. They still fall under the fear of what God is going to do to them someday. Because they don't know him. Now look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Drop the gavel. It's over. Well, I love God. Well, if he didn't love you first, you don't love anybody. I mean, he has to do the sovereign work of loving us before we could ever love him so he, he could abide in us and give us this perfect love so we wouldn't have fear of punishment. We'd understand the gospel that our sins are completely. We'd understand that there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ and we could live this life with no fear of death, no fear of judgment after this life is done. Oh, this is the sovereign work of God. And you put into all this the the fallenness of man, right? You have to have a right perspective of the fallenness of man. And Romans chapter 3 just does such a great job with that. Just flip over there and briefly just remind you of these truths. We've seen these before, but verse 10 says there's none righteous, not even one. So wait a minute. there's There's no one righteous. No one can gain access to God 
outside of God bringing them to himself. Because there's none righteous. There's also none who understand. See, this is an amazing statement. You don't talk about the wisdom of God. Remember, he's not growing in wisdom. The man left to himself, left in his depravity, he does not have a proper, right understanding of God. He's dead in his sins, isn't he? And there's no, no, verse 11, there's none who seek for God. People come, I've I've been on this quest to find God. I go, where have you been? Out in the woods. How about the Bible? See, they don't seek God. God is not hiding himself. He's right here. He's unveiled himself through his word. Look, all have turned aside. Notice the nuns and the alls all the way through this. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Again, again he says it. And then he goes down and he talks about what proceeds out of the heart, these tongues and laying lips and so forth. And then he shows the capability of depravity. You, you'll kill your, your miserable pounds. And, and then he'll show that here's the end result. You just have no peace. Verse 17 and 18. And so look, we can't forget this. When I said at the beginning of this, most people go astray because they have a, a poor view of God and a poor view of depravity. And these verses teach us we're dead in our sins. We have trespassed against God's perfect standard. We are, we are darkened in our understanding, callous in our affections for God, willfully ignorant to believe his word. We are totally without spiritual life and unable to respond to God. That's what the Bible teaches. Dr. MacArthur, just in a G3 summit that he just did here, recently said this. He says, the whole purpose of salvation is so that the Father, who is by nature love, and has eternally expressed that love in the Trinity, now listen to this, is able to extend that love beyond the persons of the Trinity to unworthy sinners. He took the love that he shares with the Father in the Son, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He took that love that is equally shared in perfection, and he now drew us into that love. Doesn't get any better than that. So listen, on this final thought on this point, and I'm going to have to hurry, our salvation is a miraculous gift. It's a miraculous gift. From a beautiful, omniscient, holy, loving God who chose for himself a group of people that will love him and glorify him in their perfect standing, which he gave them through his son's finished work. This is how he makes us perfect. Second thought. The sovereign God chose to save many from their sins and make them his forever family. Sovereign God chose to save many from their sins and make them his forever family. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. We were here last week and spent a great deal of time in this text. But just notice verse 4 and following. Think about this sovereign God who chooses to make many, save many from their sins and make us his family. You you can see this in this text. Verse 4, just as he chose, notice the us. It's a group, it's a selected group of people, right? You You can't get around this. He chose us in him before the foundation's world that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's his goal, right? He, only he could do that. In love, he predestined, predetermined our future. Don't be scared of that word. Us to adoption. 
So before time began, he predetermined we would be his forever family. I love that term. All my dear friends in here who have adopted use that term. And I thought, what a great term. I love that term. Now put it to God. I'm in his forever family because he predetermined me from the foundations of the world to be in his family. I don't know why. You can study the doctrines of grace till you die, and there's certain things you just don't quite understand why he did what he did. But I'm glad he did. Amen? I mean, think about this. And so he makes me his forever family. He does this through Jesus Christ, because you only come to him through Christ alone. According to the, look at this, the kind intention of his will. So we're back to the wisdom of God. He did this through his wisdom. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's his son. Notice the us. Notice the, the pronouns here. In him we have redemption through his blood. We, the believer, we've been bought, purchased through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. There it is. This group on us in all wisdom and insight. And he made known to us the mysteries of his will, look at this, according to the kind intentions which he purposed in him. God has kind intentions. That's why I preached what I called the doctrine of love last week. Because this is a loving act of God to rescue people who are going to die in their sins. And you can fight and go, oh, it's not fair. You, that's such a poor argument. Well, you want fair. We all die. It's a terrible argument. It's not a biblical argument. You can't use that term. It's not fair. If he does fair, let's go home and head to the beach and get everything we can out of this life because at the end is eternal death. That's fair. And so this is pure grace of God, isn't it? Election in itself, really, we think about just the doctrine of election, the word itself doesn't save anyone. The doctrine simply teaches that God chose particular people. He chose people for salvation. And, and however, those who were chosen had to be given to the Son, as we saw. Jesus says, all that you give me, I'll lose none of them. These ones that you've given me out of the world, I have kept, Father. We heard that all through John chapter 17. And that's the only way we can be redeemed. So as the gospel teaches, Jesus Christ came into the world. He added flesh to his divine nature in order to represent us. He's our representative to be our substitute, thus perfecting us through his death and completing this electoral uh, love of God that started before the foundation of the world and he drew us to himself. Astounding. Astounding. Now, the Bible teaches that the Father's choice and the Son's redeeming work were a definite design. They're an accomplishment of God, right? Intended to save certain sinners and rescue them for eternity. Now, many people believe that Christ died simply to make it possible to get to God. This is mainly an Arminian type of view, right? They believe that Christ died just simply to make it possible to pardon sinners. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God could not leave it up to sinners to choose him. Why? Because our depravity. And I think we prove that over and over in the passage. Because how do you choose when you're dead? You, you can't deaden our sins. And being dead to him, and it results in an inability to choose God. So 
all for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved. And as Jesus said, he will lose none of them whom the Father has given him. Now, we hear this all over the scriptures. We heard a lot in John. Here's John again in 1 John, 1 John 2, 2. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the world. All those of the world. Now, that, that is very similar to John 3.16, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But what this is teaching is it's teaching the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ. So it tells us that the greatness of God's plan of salvation, here's how great it was. Christ's death could save every person ever conceived from Adam to the last person. That's how great his, his work on the cross was. That's what these verses teach. They often get confused, right? People will start saying, and this is where universalism came out of. They say, oh, he died for the entire world, so everyone's going to get there. So they build their doctrine on a verse out of context. Well, look, this means in this verse that it would require Jesus to have no more obedience, no more greater suffering for Christ to secure every man, woman, and child by his death. That's what it means. It means his death was enough for the entire human race. But that's not what the Bible's teaching here. The Bible says that Jesus came into the world to represent us, to save those whom the Father had given him. Therefore, Christ's saving work was limited, and that's why we talk about limited atonement or particular redemption, in that it was designed to save those God chose from the foundations of the world while in his sovereign grace, leaving others for deserved punishment. This is where everything goes off the rail with so many people. But it's worth repeating. I want to say this one more time. The sufficiency of Christ's finished work could secure the entire human race. Now, we're many err here, and often unknowingly, because we probably were all in this at one time, because they believe that Christ's saving work could possibly have saved all mankind if they could make themselves believe. So that's, that's the stipulation, right? And, and this is a rejection of Christ's propitiatory work and actually secures, that actually secures and guarantees our salvation. So, so they say that it's sufficient if, if man can believe. So that's the stipulation, isn't it? So God's, Christ's work isn't absolute sufficient because it's based on the man or the person or the fallen individual to somehow make some faith choice. And then it's applied. See, to me, that's a clear rejection of Christ's sufficiency. Now, God is dependent upon man. And I dare you to prove me anywhere in the scriptures that need to be true. He's never dependent upon man. And so the Bible teaches us that there, our salvation is not based upon man. It's based upon God. See, that's why you have security. I, I promise you, that, I, look, all of us, if, if not all of us, maybe some of you understood the doctrines of grace very early, but most of us believed in Jesus. And most of us were asked by somebody, hey, do you want to pray and receive Jesus? I still do that with people. But the goal is till they become worshipers and disciples. You go, let me show you what God did. And we encourage people to, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll talk more about that in the, the message. But look, limit, limit atonement is, 
is terribly difficult doctrine, isn't it, to understand? And I don't think God ever meant us to do That's why I always say, I tell people, hey, quit crossing that line that belongs to God. I, I don't know us to deal with it because I don't know who God is saving and who he isn't. I tell you all the time, you didn't put an E on people's foreheads. Praise God. We would be a bunch of ruined people. We preach the gospel. We do what God's asked us to do, and we let God do what he does best. <laughs> he saves people, and we trust him. So we know people, um, we all know, think about this, because a lot of people struggle with limited atonement. Do you know somebody who died not in heaven? I know people, my grandmother, rejected Jesus to her death. I know all kinds of people. I've buried bikers in California. I've done funerals. I've done so much. I know lots of people who do not, did not know Jesus Christ. They are in hell waiting final judgment. So by that, it must be limited, right? <laughs> I mean, just this simple, not everybody goes, right? So, so we understand that. So salvation must be limited either by God's design that way in order to bring about the most glory for himself or it's limited because it's based on the responsibility of incapable sinners. Now that's pretty scary. But listen to the words of the Bible. Jesus, uh, uh, the angel speaking to Joseph at the coming birth of Christ, he says, she, she will bear a son and you shall, name his, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His people. He didn't say save all people. He didn't say save everybody who's ever been conceived and ever born. We read in Romans, we're going to get to that in a minute, Pharaoh, got a problem with that guy. God, God hardened his heart. So, so we realize that it, it is limited, right? He has a group of people. And then you get to John 3, 16, For God so loved the world and gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, this is an incredible rich passage, right? Sometimes we think of the simplicity of this verse. But when I got to it, when I was preaching through the book of John, I spent four sermons on this verse. Because certainly God loves his creation. But, but look, he is clarifying that he did not come to save only the Jews. Remember, that would have been the message. The Jews are going, look, he's our God. We might let you in if you do this, this, and this. And here... The book of John records the words of Christ and it records what, he, what God is doing. I've sent to save the entire world. What? Not universalism? No. From every what? Tribe, tongue, and nation. So you've got to understand the Bible. We've got to understand it and study it, what it means. And this is exactly what we see in Revelations 5, 9. There's this new song being sung. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal. You were slain, purchased of God with your blood. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's his goal. He was breaking down that wall of separation. He was showing that I'm coming. I came. I sent my son to save the world. All of the peoples. Peoples from every aspect of life. What a glorious thing. And we were included in this. Remember, this is the firm foundation of God. The Lord knows whose are his. Third thought. Adam, Adam represents the head of the human race, but Christ represents the head of the elect. Adam represented the head of the human race, but Christ represented the head of the elect. The New Testament draws a clear parallel between the condemning sin of Adam, right? 
in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Adam is referred to as the one who led the human race into sin, right? His depravity led us all. When he sinned, we all sinned in him. Our seed was in him, and so we all fell. So that's where depravity came from. But Jesus Christ is referred to the second Adam, Romans chapter 5. Turn there with me. It is he alone who can lead his people out of depravity into turning through his justifying work. Look at Romans chapter 5 with me. I know we're, we're, we're deep in this, but you want to study about God and salvation. This is where you got to go, right? Isn't this fun? I hope you're having fun. I'm having a good time. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man's sin, sin entered the world. Right? Everybody believe that? That's depravity. That's the doctrine of sin. That's harmartiology, right? Harmartia is sin. This is the doctrine of sin. Sin entered through one man, and we all fell under sin with him. Notice that the death through sin, things started dying. As soon as Adam and Eve um, sinned, everything starts dying. Uh, Man, I'd love to see the replay on that. Things are killing each other. A friendly tiger now tried to eat him one day. Things went south, right? And here's what happened. So death spread to all men. See, there's no argument, right? Depravity, all are sinners. uh, Grandparents, your little angel children, they're fallen. They need to be saved. Remember that. Pray for them. (laughs) All have sinned, right? So nobody escapes this because all sin. Look at that. Now, just for the sake of time, drop down to verse 17 with me. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So one led us into sin, and then there's this one who comes with abundance of grace, abundance of a gift of righteousness, and pulls us out of it, and we'll reign with him someday, verse 18. That's federal headship in Christ, right? There was a federal headship in in Adam. He led us all into depravity. He was the head of that. Now Christ is the head of the elect, and he brings us out of this, right? Verse 18, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. You can't get around it. Everyone's a sinner. Even so, through, look at this beautiful thing, one act of righteousness, this is our work of Jesus Christ, there resulted justification, declaring of righteous, of life to all men. Wait a minute, is it teaching universalism? Is it back to the world again? All men, all peoples, Portuguese, we get saved. My buddy Tony down here. Dan, he saves Jews, doesn't he? There's Dan right there. Puerto Ricans, even New Yorkers. He saves people, right? He pulls us out, and he makes us his from all peoples, Egyptians, right? He does it all. This is what he does. He's our federal head. Verse 19, for as though one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, right? All followed our, our headship in Adam. Even so, the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous, praise God. Do you see your choice in there anywhere? Well, wait a minute. This is the act of God. This is a sovereign God. When you study the doctrine of salvation, you've got to study God. This is what he does. Amen? Romans 8. Turn over a couple pages. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. Now listen to the wordings. But delivered him up for us. All for us. It's a particular people, isn't it? 
who will bring who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, that's the us. The us and the elect are the same group, right? I draw an arrow in my Bible. I got those circled, the elect, and I got us, and I got a little connection between those because they have to understand what us is. It's the elect. Who is the one who justifies? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, it is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. For us, the elect, he intercedes for us. Samuel Medley wrote a hymn back in the 1700s called Awake My Soul in Joyful Lays. Old, old hymn. He wrote this. He saw me in ruined, he saw me ruined in the fall, yet loved me notwithstanding all. He saved me from my lost estate. His loving kindness is so great. He was writing poems as a preacher and somebody put it to music later. See, this has been the thought of the church since the birth of it. It is the sovereign work of God. Number four, does God predestine some people to hell? I wanted to answer these kind of questions because these are things that people wrestle with, right? We want to see what the Bible has to say. Well, look, the simple answer is that the saved go to heaven because God chose them from the foundations of the world and the lost go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's a simple answer. I'm going to heaven because God chose me from the foundations of the world. And when he did that, I could not escape his grace. But the lost go to heaven. You want to um, go to hell, you can define it because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For me, it's really easy to talk about God's electing love. I, I can talk about this all the time because I'm still amazed at it. And how he knew me from the foundations of the world, this flows out of me. It just, there's a great desire to, to study this and know this God who would love me in such a way. And, and he drew me through Christ alone. However, it comes a little bit difficult when we start to talk about the non-elect. Those who will be left in judgment. Remember, God chose to pull some out and leave others deserving of it. See, this is why we're so humbled at this doctrine. And if you want, to, you want to be careful with God here, there's so many people when they hear this go, oh, God's just mean. Well, speaking through Ezekiel, God said this, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, this is Ezekiel 33, 11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Cries out, here's God speaking, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? This is why we preach this way. God's word always supplies a fervent plea for repentance, and we should too. Throw yourself in front of people. Beg for God to save them. Plead with him. And yet, brothers and sisters, when we study this doctrine, we realize that God is glorified in so many different ways. You cannot miss how God was glorified in the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. We'll see that in a moment in Romans. I thought I would write out a definition of predestination just to help you. So many people struggle with this, but I think this helps us understand what, why God does what he does. So here's a definition. God's eternal and uninfluenced. God's eternal and uninfluenced 
divine determination of all things. It's a very important word, uninfluenced. Uninfluenced of all things, precisely God's eternal choice of those who will be eternally saved and those he will leave in their sins and allow them to receive their just due judgment. I I don't know how you get around that biblically. It's just too clear in the Bible. Spurgeon said, "Your your damnation is your own election, not God's. You richly deserve it. See, that's what you come to. And though God chooses us out of the world and who and why and how, I don't think we'll ever get that answer until we get into his presence. But what, what is left is, is, is fair, right? That's what we deserve. And so Spurgeon and so many men have said, look, our rightly deserved is death. And yet the Bible says things like this, Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, for his own glory. Listen to this, even the wicked for the day of evil. The word evil there means doomed or troubled. So God, in his infinite wisdom, has designed all of this. He's not God if he doesn't have control of all these things, brothers and sisters. If somewhere along that he just says, well, hey, it's up to them to get their way to me or not. I don't know if I want to follow a God is isn't sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over everything. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. You're going to have friends that are going to go, what's going on over there? And you have to walk them through and lovingly show them the grace of God and walk them through these great passages. The Bible goes on. Look at, uh, go back to that Romans 9 just briefly. There were where Jason read to us. And I just want to blow through this very quickly because of my time. But look at this. Verse 12. It was said of her, the, young, the older will serve the younger. It is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Ow. It's a hard one. Do you know God uses the word hate quite a bit in Scripture? He hates sin. He hates disunity. He uses the word hate quite a bit. Here he uses of an individual. And what shall we say then, verse 14? There is no justice with God, is there? May it never be, may Janito. No, it's impossible. God is perfectly just, so you're misinterpreting this. He's warning you before you can actually respond to Paul, right? The Spirit of God speaking to him. For he said to Moses, look at this, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What do you do with that verse? You're going to charge God? 16. So then it does not depend on man who wills, man who runs, but on God who has mercy. See, isn't that so clear? I can't run my way to God. I can't faith my way to God. I need God. This is when you get saved because you finally get to this point. You go, oh, God, help me. Please save me. This is the cry of a sinner. This is the cry of somebody who is moved in the heart of God. I mean, moved in his heart by God to cry out. And we, and we lead people there. We try to get them to do this because we're human and we're not God. But it's so dependent upon God, isn't it? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now he brings in another example. For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name, my glory might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. What does he do? Look, at he hardens him, right? 
Verse 18, so then his mercy, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Whew, I'm glad he's God, not me. Do you want to make these decisions? You want to get who gets in the lifeboat and who doesn't? God does this. And we're okay with God because he's perfect in all that he does, right? He's perfect. He makes no mistakes. And if it wasn't for God, we would be the condemned, wouldn't we? Verse 19, so will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists him? See, there's now this blaming of God, leaving people in their sins. He's, he's, this, he's reacting to a question that's going to come, and he says, and he brings the answer. Verse 20, on the contrary, who are you? Oh, man, who answers back to God. Wait a minute, now he's pointing to their depravity. You, in your sin, are going to tell God he's wrong? This is such a profound passage, isn't it? It's anticipating arguments. If you don't believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, you, you, this passage should change your mind about that. And then he says this, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? You're, you know, you're a little pot. I don't want to be a water pot. I want to be China. Can you remold me? The clay doesn't talk back to the potter, right? The clay is in the potter's hands. You submit to the potter's hands. This is what he's doing, right? Or does it not the potter have the right over the clay to make the same lump, one vessel for honorable use, there's your china, or another for common use? Might be the peapot slid under the bed. I don't know. Both have a good have a place, right? God has a, his role, right? This all comes out of Isaiah 64 and Jeremiah 18. Now look at this. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? See, God does not give immediate punishment. But he uses those to show his glory, doesn't he? Look, the lost, those, whoever they are, we don't know who they are. To the last minute, we have hope that God would save them. But whoever they are, enjoy God's common grace on this world for, for years of life, don't they? Some of them are the most wealthy people who ever, ever imagined. You, don't know, you can't even write the amount of zeros behind what they own. And yet they'll die and go to hell. And God gave them all that stuff on this earth. He's a very merciful God. And he endures patiently, even with those vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And, and he did so, verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy. That's us. We look at him and go, oh God, you didn't send me to hell. You didn't condemn me. You, in fact, you chose me from the foundations of the world. You drew me out. You called me. Oh, what a loving, loving act of God. Notice verse 24, I have this circled in my Bible, even us. That's you, believer. That's you, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only. Remember I was telling you about those verses that say uh, that he had saved the whole world? This is the understanding of it. Not only the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles, the whole world. If you're not a Jew in here, you understand this. Right? Because the Jews thought, hey, this is our Messiah, this is our God, this is all us. We may let you in, but you're going to have to do all these lists. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to make two groups one. 
I'm coming for you. What an amazing text. So God has preordained everything to come to pass. Even the preparation of vessels of wrath for destruction for his own people to see the fullness of his glory. Think about this. What would our knowledge of God and his perfection be like if we did not see the full expression of his attributes? And you go, what does that mean? Well, here's what I believe. God desired before he created the universe that his grace, mercy, forgiveness, justice, holiness, righteousness, and the rest of his attributes would be on full display in perfection. However, none of these attributes could be fully expressed if there was no punishment of sin and no forgiveness of sin. So God's demonstration of all of his attributes come on full display in both the rescue of the the elect and the damnation of the lost. And that's what Romans 9 is about. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Look, if everybody goes, and we're all going to get there, what's your view of grace? It really isn't. There's not much grace, is it? I mean, there's some. You know, it's really nice to let everybody in. What about his justice? What about his holiness? See, you start to see the magnitude of a God in all of his attributes when you understand what he has done here. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, allowed evil and sin to run its course so that he would be magnified in his glory and the greatness of his love towards his elect. So yes, God decided in eternity past not to rescue some from sin. That's what the scripture teaches But certainly as disturbing as this doctrine is, and even Calvin referred to it, is the doctrine of terrible. Because it is. (laughs) I don't want any of you to go to hell. I will give every ounce of my effort to try to lead you to Christ. I don't want to see anybody go. I want the, the most wretched of sinners that humans can come up with to know Christ. Do you? See, when you experience grace, that's what happens to us. And there are just so many examples in the scriptures that, that this humbling truth is there. Pharaoh being one in chapter, Romans chapter 9. Then you got Judas. What do you do with him, right? Jesus in his high priestly prayer, chapter 17, verse 12 of John says, While I was with him, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Then he says this, but the son of perdition. Oh, my goodness. What do you do with that? Son of perdition means one destined for destruction. See, you got the Judases. They're here. The Pharaohs, they're all in here. But Jesus didn't fail, right? Because of Judas, right? He didn't, oh man, Judas got through my fingers. This is all part of God's plan. He wasn't frustrated with Judas. Jesus always succeeds in what he's doing, so all that the Father gave him, he kept and he brought him because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. That's what he does. This should comfort us. I'm out. Oh, I'm out of time. I gotta quit. Last thought How do I know I'm chosen by God for salvation? Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus came and died for your sins, not one of them, but all of them, that he's presented you now holy and blameless before God and you had nothing to do with it? He did this on his own and you put your faith in that because God opened your heart. Do you believe that? Then you're the elect. 
It's that simple. We study this so we know the greatness of God. That's why we look at this. So we see how beautiful he is. He calls his sheep. Are you hearing him call? It sounds like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. Did you hear that? Do you believe that? You're the elect. And it bears fruit. You can say, well, I believe that and bear no fruit. Then you really didn't believe it. Oh, when Jesus saves, he changes. Will you stand with me just for the sake of time and let me give you a closing benediction. Hmm. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for shining your light and grace on undeserving lives. Thank you that you are a God of perfect wisdom, holiness, and love, and yet you're mindful of us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, who alone could undo the sin of Adam and become our representative. Thank you for unveiling the understanding of the vastness of your glory displayed in perfect salvation and judgment. Thank you for giving us a heart of flesh and calling us your, through your Son, whom we believe with our hearts and we confess with our tongues. Amen.